The start of this uh, sermon may sound like what I did on my summer vacation. Uh, I've not been in worship for three weeks, and that's because we were in uh, the Mediterranean, and uh, we had the opportunity to spend time in Rome and Athens and places in between. And um, I really felt blessed by this trip, uh, spending time in Rome and Athens and seeing those sites of antiquity, uh, the Acropolis. Um, with the Agora and the business and cultural center of ancient Greece, and uh, then the ruins of ancient Rome itself, the Colosseum and the Pantheon, which is now a church. Um, this was a real opportunity to see the Greco-Roman culture, which underlies uh, so much of our, our church history and our, our, our faith history as well. Later in November, uh, my wife Claire and my daughter Elizabeth, uh, Claire and a, Elizabeth and Jason were on the trip uh, at the same time. We'll be going to the Holy Land with Glenn and Julie Miles, um, so they'll be in Jerusalem. And I thought this is quite remarkable that they will have been in Athens and Greece, I mean Athens and Rome and Jerusalem, um, all in the course of a little over three months. And it occurred to me how much this is underlying. This ancient culture underlines the background of our scriptures and of our faith tradition itself. Paul himself was a Pharisee. He spoke and wrote in Greek because it was a, really a, a Greek culture at that time. They were the cultural leaders of the Mediterranean world. And of course, he was a Roman citizen as well, so he really represented all three in his, his own being. When he wrote in Romans and Galatians that Abraham's faith, when he left his homeland to set out from the Fertile Crescent to Canaan, he set out not knowing where he was going. And Paul writes, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. And he said, therefore, we are justified by faith. This was the underlying theme of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther followed this with his own doctrine based on Paul, that we are justified by faith alone. And it's true that Paul, I mean, that uh, Martin Luther never liked the letter of James that uh, Kate just read from. He thought it was in conflict with that basic premise, thought it was straw with no firmness or clarity. He thought it was indeed conflicting with the gospel itself. Today we see things much differently. The letter itself is attributed to James, the brother of Jesus. Many people don't think about the fact that the Gospels indicate that Jesus had a family, that he grew up in a family where he had a brother, and, and James was in fact the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He was a Palestinian Jew, um, but it was in a Hellenized society under Roman domination. So really this letter reflects those three parts of the culture, and it's really in dialogue with Paul. It's not in conflict with Paul. It's really in dialogue. It's a, in the form of Greco-Roman moral exhortation, asking people to be transformed in their moral attitudes. Later, he argues in this letter, and it's well known for this, he argues that faith without works is dead, that if it is not accompanied by action, it is dead. James says, in fact, in today's text that we are to be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word who, in fact, deceive ourselves. In other words, don't just talk the talk. We need to walk the walk. 
I think of that Nike symbol that is so prominent in athletic wear and equipment these days, the Nike symbol which is taken from ancient times and the, the phrase behind it is just do it. Don't just talk about it, do it. I've also heard the phrase particularly uh, with regard to those of us who preach that I would rather see a sermon than hear one any time. And in fact, that is the challenge for us. Do we, in fact, walk the walk if we talk the talk? But as James says in his letter, you first must be hearers of the word. You first must listen. And in fact, he cautions us to listen before we speak. I can't tell you how many times members of my family have said, particularly recently as I've gotten older, did you really hear what I was saying? We kind of listen, but we don't really listen. We're not engaged. We're not hearing because we're not uh, learning because we're not hearing. Sometimes uh, my daughter and my son have started to call us by our first names instead of mom and dad. I'll hear Jim or Claire. And uh, this, in fact, started when Jimmy was quite young. He said, Jimmy, why do you call your parents by their first name? He says, well, every time I tried to ask you a question or talk with you and we're saying, Mom, Dad, you never listened. Then I'd say, Jim, Claire, and you'd listen. <laughs> so maybe that's the excuse, but that's what we got here. We think about arguments that we have in our lives, uh, arguments many times over politics and religion. And I think back to my grandfather when we were growing up. He was a general practitioner in this community. He used to counsel not to talk about politics or religion because it inherently led to conflict. But what happens is that we do talk about these things because they're important. They're deeply held values in our lives. Deeply held values that can actually become if addictive, if you will, or attached to us, if you will. In classic contemplative theology, it's argued that we can become deeply attached to our ideas about religion and about politics. And when someone challenges our ideas, it really causes us to respond in one of two ways. We either fight or we flee. It's fight or flight. Many times we argue and then we cut off a relationship soon thereafter. I only recently got on Facebook largely out of self-defense against my daughter's postings through the years. But, uh, but Facebook oftentimes can lead people as email. You can write very much what you want and send it in a more detached way. And many times people put their views out there and sometimes the views are so conflicting for them that they will defriend someone because they simply don't want to be exposed to that viewpoint. We oftentimes have a harder time doing that face-to-face -face with our relationships, but it happens as well that actually the conflict leads us to say, I'm just not going to deal with this anymore. Now, it's true there are times we need to eliminate conflict in our lives, and some relationships are soured by our lack of acceptance of one another and perhaps the conflict in things we believe. But usually, even in a good old-fashioned argument with someone, or even in an email or a Facebook posting, we're usually thinking about our response to what we're reading more than really hearing or listening to what the person is saying. We're consciously preparing our rebuttal to the prior argument. Do we ever really listen to one another? 
It's hard. It's difficult. As Scott Peck said in his book, The Road Less Traveled, life is difficult, and that's one of the aspects of life that is challenging. Relationships, even when we disagree profoundly on some of the most fundamental issues in our lives. This is really why ancient moral philosophy, um, as anticipated by James and articulated by him, exhorts us to be quick to listen before we speak, to actually hear before we respond by word or deed. In fact, we are exhorted to be slow to speak. We can see it all around us, how words hurt people, words do damage, words that can't be retracted and undo the damage. We see this in personal relationships and in public life as well. Another aspect of our culture that is so challenging is that many things that we have written or recorded with uh, social media and other, other media um, really are preserved. If we can go back and really see, resurrect, if you will, what we might have thought about something or said about something. I can think back on many attitudes I may have had in my life earlier where my opinions have changed since then. I am glad I am not on record with some of the views I held which now seem to be wrong or antiquated. This is true in our individual lives and in our life as a church. I think back to how we related to the LBGT community as individuals and as a church and as a wider community of faith, not always being aware, not always understanding. And yet, over time, we have changed. Changed, And there comes a time when we say, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I've learned, I've grown from something. My words or my actions would not be the same today. And in fact, this is how we grow as human beings. We hope to learn from our mistakes. Nevertheless, even if we learn or change, we do look back and see some of the damage that we have done. This next year will be my 50th high school reunion. It'll be next summer. But this fall, in just a week, we're having a reunion of the 1968 state championship football team at Upper Arlington. That reunion will be next weekend. I was a manager on that team. I did not play on the team. But a former player and I am leading a brief service of remembrance for the coaches, players, and managers who are no, managers who are no longer with us. This included our head coach, who was Marv Moorhead, who was a member of this congregation. Marv and Sonny Moorhead were very beloved members of our church, and he was the head coach. Yesterday, during the rain delay at the game, I was in that part of the stadium where they had the Ohio High School uh, Athletic Hall of Fame for coaches, and Marv's name is up there. Our quarterback, Ted McNaldy was a high school All-American, was the finest athlete in, in our era, if you will. And both Marv and Ted died of, in accidents. Marv, much later in his life, in a car accident in France. Ted, much, much younger when he was uh, in California in a kind of a freak accident in the fog one day. And so two of our most heralded people will not be there this week. But we're remembering all the people who were not there, even those who were a, a smaller part of the overall program and the overall team, 
but recognizing that all of us had our part, all of us had our role to play in this, and that we all shared this experience. Um, I remember uh, talking with uh, the minister that I'm going to be serving with next Monday or next uh, Friday night. He's, he showed me a clip from the Dead Poets Society. And uh, that's the film with Robin Williams, who is a teacher who teaches uh, all of these young people about these, quote, dead poets, poets who had written in a prior era. And in this, he has a picture of earlier students who were young like they are now at the time of the, of the talk. And he shows them this picture and he says, each one of these people looks just like you. They're young. They have a whole life ahead of them. They are looking towards the future. They don't know what will come. But one thing I want you to know is, is the phrase carpe diem, seize the day. You can't know how life will unfold, so seize this day. Make the most of each moment. I think that's what the reality is behind our memorial service for those who are part of an experience but are not with us as we remember. The idea that each of us has a life that unfolds in ways we don't know or understand. And therefore, each day is important to seize each day and to remember whatever we say or do has consequences in the lives of others. Sometimes the damage is done. I remember well our 45th high school reunion when a, a man came back who had never been back to a reunion before. He was a classmate in high school. His name was Mike. And Mike had been the victim of a very cruel, humiliating joke um, in, in our high school days. He was a member of the swim team, and, and he really was scarred by that incident, and that reflected his high school experience. In today's words, we would say he was bullied or hazed. And when Mike came back for the 45th reunion, he had not um, been back before that time. But he went and got pictures of the football team that he did not play on um, and had them blown up as posters for our reunion dinner, not only the team, but also individuals. And we were going to use those posters next uh, Friday night. So in the course of getting those back to be used, I learned really that Mike at the 45th reunion, he has since passed away and will not be here at the next reunion, had really encountered the person who had engaged in the cruel and humiliating conduct um, that he suffered under. And this person was literally in tears and was, was really asking for forgiveness. And Mike really, in, in really demonstrating in our faith, the opportunity for grace and forgiveness really did forgive his tormentor. And that was an important aspect of that reunion, not knowing that Mike wouldn't be back for the next reunion. He did all this wonderful work to, for the football team because a member of our team who was a state champion in track and field was kind to Mike, and he remembered that. And he really went out of his way to get these photos that we're now using to remember those who have gone on before. But the perpetrators of humiliation or pain or suffering, whether it's in word or deed, yes, we are open for, for forgiveness and for grace if someone can see their way clear to do that. 
Mike accepted the apology and they were reconciled. But the reality is those events affected his life. So once again, going back to James's letter, we need to hear before we speak. And we need to act after hearing and before we act out of anger. One of the things that James says in the letter is we need to be quick to hear but slow to anger. He recognizes that we have anger in our lives, but it can't be unleashed without consequences. The ancients had a saying, Seneca, the Stoic philosopher who was an advisor to Emperor Nero, the cruel emperor who persecuted Christians, said, whom God wishes to destroy, he first makes mad. In fact, there's throughout the ancient literature, not just biblical literature, but Greek and Roman moral exhortation, there is a cautionary tale about anger. Anger is really a feeling, as we know with modern psychology. We know that feelings are not bad in and of themselves. Modern psychology calls us to really acknowledge our feelings, to recognize them, and to really uh, see ways that we can not act out of those feelings in ways that are destructive, either to oneself or others. The ancients probably didn't have the same understanding about psychology, but anger was an accepted fact of life. And their ethical concern was when anger leads to hate, it can lead to revenge and even self-destructive behavior, such as anger turned on oneself. Robin Williams, who was the teacher in that young Dead Poets Society movie, which many people love, ended up taking his own life. This brilliant, funny, talented man had, had deep depression. And sometimes anger not only is turned outwards, but can be turned inwards on people and it can cause depression where they see no way out of that depression. So the ancients were right. Be slow to anger. Recognize it for what it is, that it is there. But be slow to anger. And the cautionary language in the letter is that it's because our anger is not the wrath of God. We do not have the right to speak for God. We, in fact, are human beings who are seeking ways to serve, to be doers of the deeds, to be those who, in fact, are living out the gospel, the gospel of love, to love one's neighbor as oneself, and to love God. In thinking about this sermon, I related back to something that happened in my early years when I was growing up. I remember I was in ninth grade at junior high school, and I had uh, tried out for the baseball team. I had always played baseball growing up, and I was a catcher on the baseball team. And I wasn't very big. I was young for my class, and I wasn't uh, the, the strongest arm as far as throwing was. I was a good catcher, but I remember trying out for the ninth grade team, the freshman team, and I was cut from the team um, at that time. It, the diamonds I played on kept getting bigger until we were eventually playing on major league-sized diamonds, and I simply really didn't have the arm to be a catcher. Now, that's just what many people go through in school, um, but I remember that just not long after I was cut from that team, was really the spring when my parents' accident, when uh, their plane crashed 
uh, in Johnson City, Tennessee on the way to the Masters. And so after, after this experience, um, our lives changed drastically. We ended up living with my aunt and uncle that summer. And I remember playing in baseball game in the middle of that summer. And um, it was recreational league. My uncle was there to watch. And I remember striking out. I was still trying to play catcher in that league under that diamond. And I, and I walked away from the plate, and I took the bat, and I just hurled it on the ground, thinking it would fall right on the ground. But it kind of pinwheeled, and it went over the head of one of the players who was on deck waiting to hit. And there was this audible gasp amongst the uh, parents and the spectators, and in fact the team, that this bat came close to really taking somebody out, if you will. But that was an act that I realized in retrospect. I remember walking to the car with my uncle and didn't chastise me or put me down for, for my anger. He somehow recognized that I was angry, that that somehow had played out in that experience. But that's an example, if that bat had hit somebody, even if I had a subsequent understanding of maybe why I did it, um, the reality would be the damage would be done. But the anger was there. And one of the things we all learn as human beings, and one of the things we all learn really as people of faith, is that even though we have these feelings, we do have the choice whether to act out on them. The choice whether to let anger move towards revenge or hate or even self-destruction is in the case of some people. We're never going to be free of all of that, but the reality is we do have a choice as to how we respond to those things that happen in our lives. We're never going to be free of our emotions, but if we don't pay attention to what is really going on, we can do real damage to others and to ourselves. This is why James cautions against being quick to anger. However, we are not immobilized by that knowledge. Just because we know that our motives may be mixed at times or that we are angry, there are genuine times when we are called out of the gospel of love to act. And so the text does not leave us there where just don't be quick to anger, but it says be doers of the word. Be doers of the word who are, in fact, living out the faith, which is the law of love, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So this is the final thing, the final message where James really appears to be in conflict with Paul, but it's not really true. These two things do fit together. Yes, we are saved by our faith. We are accepted. We are accepted by God as we are. But the reality is God doesn't call us just to stay where we are, but calls us to move forward as people of faith and to act on behalf of others. This may be acting in the religious world or the political world. There are times where even if we are angry, we need to focus what is really important onto those things that we are called to do something about. The last part of my, my sermon really was, uh, to, and the title was then, um, was to act without judgment. And so the final thing is we don't just simply hear the word, but we act. But I added without judgment. And the thing that, that bothered me about that phrase is of course we need to use judgment. I mean, we have to use judgment about what we're called to do and 
how we're called to act. It's extremely important. But what I was trying to get at is not about using good judgment or you might say discernment in a spiritual sense, but really to avoid judging others, those even who have made us angry, who have made us uh, really uh, respond in a certain fashion, at least emotionally, to recognize that we are still called to be people who do not judge others. I think the most classic example for me, and I've talked about this in this pulpit before, is really uh, the, the image of uh, Abraham Lincoln during the American Civil War. In his second inaugural address, he had been reelected, but the war was still on and was still being prosecuted. And uh, he was talking about how things had been going and how it was getting closer to the conclusion. Uh, but he said uh, some very important things is that uh, he said, both sides in this conflict read the same Bible. Both sides pray to the same God. Both sides have asked God for help in their cause, and neither side's prayers have been fully answered. So it makes it sound like moral equivalence, if you will. But he understood that this problem of slavery was the problem that was underlying this entire conflict. And he did make a judgment in that speech. He said he did not know how people could pray to God when they were extracting the bread of life from the sweat of the brow of their fellow human beings. But he quickly said after that, but let us judge not lest we be judged. I always took that as an example of how as Christians or as people who are called to respond whether it's to religious or political life or wherever we're called, is that we are called to make judgments, but that we have to be careful to think that our judgments are not necessarily God's judgments, that God is God and we're not. I had someone say to me once, that's really the foundational reality of our lives as people of faith, is that we are not God, but we are made in the image of God called to do what God calls us to do in the gospel of love, to love one another, to oppose those things that uh, truly are unjust, such as slavery was in our American society and culture. And so we make judgments, but we act out of love, and we act with the knowledge that God's judgment is not necessarily our judgment. For me, this is really what James is getting at. It's the whole process of how we act as people of faith. That when we look at a situation, do we quickly turn to speaking and giving our ideas, or do we truly hear the other side? And if we're quick to hear, and very, I mean, I'm sorry, if we're quick to, um, to, um, to hate, if we are quick to, in fact, turn uh, to this other side, we don't necessarily know how to act in God's good purposes. So he said we are supposed to be very slow to hear and quick to understand and then to act out of that understanding. As we gather this day, let us be aware of God's continued call upon our lives that we are to act on behalf of God, without judgment, but in the spirit of God's love 
now and always. Amen.